When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop Series 2, a podcast about the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Donald Trump has reminded me of John Kennedy lately and yet not reminded me of John Kennedy at all. This is not the total ball of relativism episode of Whistle Stop, but a meditation on the ways in which presidents communicate. John Kennedy mastered the new medium of television in much the same way Donald Trump has taken advantage of social media. Kennedy used it to get around the traditional newsprint media. Kennedy also tried to change the conventional wisdom of the way people thought about certain policies in the same way Donald Trump does. Those are the similarities. The difference is Donald Trump uses social media to make assertions, not arguments. He uses his new media to simply claim what is true. Kennedy, on the other hand, used his new medium that he was trying to master to make a case. He was a great believer in the idea that a patient, careful argument delivered in a well-crafted speech could change minds. We're going to look at a single Kennedy speech to try to figure out what we think about the power of presidential communication. This is a big field, this communication questions. You could walk around it with your sweetheart and never hear the dinner bell. And we're not going to try and plow the whole thing or cover all the territory or otherwise fill out the four corners of this metaphor. But we are going to try to make a start. 12,000 persons attend graduation ceremonies on Yale University's old campus as President Kennedy and Dean Acheson receive honorary degrees. The president, a Harvard graduate, is made an honorary doctor of laws before delivering the commencement address. On June 11, 1962, John Kennedy received an honorary degree from Yale University and used the opportunity to make the case for his tax and spending programs. His goal was not simply to outline what they were, however. Instead, he made a larger argument for his theories by arguing for a new epistemological framework for evaluating his policies. The expression epistemological framework has not been used very much in the Trump administration, other than perhaps by his critics who have charged that he has dismantled any epistemological frameworks, replacing such with an epistemology that amounts to simply what he says is so. This may be better politics, a notion we'll explore a little more later on, but first the history. Kennedy had come to Yale to make a pitch to businessmen. The economy was in a somewhat anemic condition, and Kennedy was making the case that his policies were going to improve it. He consciously chose the fancy Ivy League school to make an appeal to elites, but also to use the school's reputation to elevate his argument. The ceremony might lend an air of assent. In other words, the audience agreed with him, 
because they were being polite. And therefore, business should too. First, Kennedy started with a protracted series of jokes to soften up the audience. This entire speech is a formalized kind of speech-making we don't hear in our current politics. Donald Trump certainly doesn't speak this way. In this case, Kennedy is playing to the club, and with the elements and characteristics of clubbiness, which is to say the inside joke. It's quite a meta approach, actually. Food for literary scholars. Kennedy is using his admission to the club which is to say the degree, to demonstrate his legitimacy in the club, with all these inside jokes to those who've let him in, as a way to upend the clubby thinking of the business world through persuasion, which the president hopes will work because he's been granted the warrant or the approval of the clubby audience that is sitting in front of him. It feels like an ancient form of analysis to talk about a speech this way because we don't cover speeches like this anymore. We cover them for their hurrah appeal, as they used to say in 19th century politics, for the way in which they get the guts and humor stirring in the audience. Presidents spend less time persuading now and more time rallying, but more on that later. First, the jokes. Members of the faculty and fellows, graduates and their families, ladies and gentlemen, let me begin by expressing my appreciation for the very deep honor that you have conferred upon me. As General de Gaulle occasionally acknowledges, America to be the daughter of Europe, so I am pleased to come to Yale, the daughter of Harvard. <laughs> it might be said now that I have the best of both worlds, a Harvard education and a Yale degree. <laughs> I am particularly glad to become a Yale man because as I think about my troubles, I find that a lot of them have come from other Yale men. <laughs> Among businessmen, I've had a minor disagreement with Roger Blau of the law school class of 1931, and I've had some complaints too from my friend Henry Ford of the class of 1940. In journalism, I seem to have some differences with John Hay Whitney of the class of 1926. <laughs> And sometimes I also displease Henry Luce of the class of 1920, not to mention always William F. Buckley Jr. of the class of 1950. Kennedy had named the publisher of Time magazine, Henry Luce, the founder of the conservative national review, William F. Buckley, and John Whitney, known as Jock, who was the publisher of the New York Herald Tribune. Whitney was also the outgoing U.S. ambassador to Great Britain when Kennedy came in and Eisenhower went out. Whitney once described Kennedy as sensitive, ruthless, and highly sexed. In his series of jokes, Kennedy then went on to make fun of a former Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, who had advised Kennedy on foreign policy. Kennedy's national security advisor, Mick George Bundy, who had been demoted after a disagreement over the Bay of Pigs, and Under Secretary of State Chester Bowles, who had vehemently opposed the Bay of Pigs in that early period of the Kennedy administration. I even have some trouble with my Yale advisors. I get along with them, but I'm not always sure how they get along with each other. I have the warmest feelings for Chester Bowles of the class of 1924, and for Dean Acheson of the class of 1915, and my assistant, McGeorge Bundy, of the class of 1940. But I'm not 100% sure that these three wise and experienced Yale men wholly agree with each other on every issue. 
So this administration, which aims at peaceful cooperation among all Americans, has been the victim of a certain natural pugnacity developed in this city among Yale men. Now that I, too, am a Yale man, it is time for peace. Last week at West Point, in the historic tradition of that academy, I availed myself of the powers of Commander-in-Chief to remit all sentences of offending cadets. In that same spirit, and in the historic tradition of Yale, let me now offer to smoke the clay pipe of friendship with all of my brother Eli's. And I hope that they may be friends, not only with me, but even with each other. Next, the president pivoted in his speech. Again, I'm going to do a little literary criticism here. How do you move from the funny stuff that you're supposed to open your speeches with? Any, any speech writer will tell you that. Liz Carpenter, who is the press secretary for Lady Bird Johnson, wrote a book about speech making. And I think it was called Start with a Laugh. But how do you move from the funny stuff to your serious argument? Well, you can abruptly say, but seriously, folks, or you can sort of fade the humor slowly using the same topic of your last joke to launch into your next point. It's sort of the rhetorical equivalent of the no-look pass. So back to Kennedy. Listen to how he transitions out of his jokes about Yale to presenting the first stage of his argument. And what he's going to do is try to make a claim about history and change. Remember, this is the president who ran on promising a new generation, a turning of the page. And so he is making the case both for the historic weight of the issues he's about to raise, but also he's making the case for change by talking about history. In any event, I'm very glad to be here. And as a new member of the club, I have been checking to see what earlier links existed between the institution of the presidency and uh, Yale. I found that a member of the class of 1878, William Howard Taft, served one term in the White House as preparation for becoming a member of this faculty. <laughs> and a graduate of 1804, John C. Calhoun, regarded the vice presidency quite naturally as too lowly a status for a Yale alumnus and became the only man in history to ever resign that office. Calhoun in 1804 and Taft in 1878 graduated into a world very different from ours today. They and their contemporaries spent entire careers stretching over 40 years and grappling with a few dramatic issues on which the nation was sharply and emotionally divided. Issues that occupied the attention of a generation at a time. The National Bank, the disposal of the public land, nullification or union, freedom or slavery, gold or silver. Today, these old sweeping issues have largely disappeared. The central domestic problems of our time are more subtle and less simple. They relate not to basic clashes of philosophy or ideology, but to ways and means of reaching common goals, to research for sophisticated solutions to complex and obstinate issues. The world of Calhoun, the world of Taft, had its own hard problems and notable challenges, but its problems are not our problems. Their age is not our age. 
as every past generation has had to disenthrall itself from an inheritance of truisms and stereotypes, so in our time we must move on from the reassuring repetition of stale phrases to a new, difficult, but essential confrontation with reality. What I think Kennedy is saying is that the problems today are just as important as those of the past, but they are subtle. You have to squint. You have to have patience, and you have to be willing to change. That last line is key, and that's Kennedy saying, we must move on from the reassuring reputation of stale phrases to a new, difficult, but essential confrontation with reality. That's Kennedy telling his audience at Yale and in the business community that they can't move forward if they're stuck in the past. Now, here's an alternative reading of this passage, and it comes from Richard Reeves, the fantastic Kennedy biographer. He writes in Profile of Power, of that passage where Kennedy makes the comparison between previous presidents and previous eras and the problems they had to solve, here's what he says about that passage. There was an underlying theme that showed that, despite the rigging rhetoric of many of his public statements, Kennedy seemed to think that he was a man born too late. He believed there was no great problems to be solved, no great dragons to slay, no great compromises to be made. Pragmatism and the tuning and polishing of machinery of government might be important and necessary, but they were boring. I essentially defer to Reeves, especially since Kennedy found business talk, which was the purpose of this speech, somewhat boring. But I see that passage as actually a rhetorical sleight of hand or a rhetorical piece of finery and filigree and less a sign of the view that Kennedy thinks he lives in unremarkable times, especially since the Bay of Pigs, which was part of his earlier jokes about his advisors, was just a a year before. And regardless, the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962 would certainly put all of the excitement in front of the president that he could possibly hope for. All right, but let's leave aside all of that little detour and focus on what the speech is actually about. The speech is about how the president is going to get the economy moving again. And here I'm relying on Reeves' storytelling to give you the context of why he cares about the economic conditions and why he's making this pitch to the business community. On Kennedy's birthday, this is the one celebrated famously that year by Marilyn Monroe, who who sang to him at Madison Square Garden. On On his birthday, the 29th of May, the New York Times carried a headline, Stock prices dive in sharpest loss since 1929 break. $20,800,000,000 of value erased. The stock market had dropped 35 points. Blue Monday, they called it. Others called it the Kennedy crash. The president was blamed because pundits said business didn't trust him. Or they thought the market was balking from his attack on U.S. steel and the famous line that trickled out from that fight. What was that fight? Briefly, the U.S. steel companies had made an agreement with the Kennedy administration that they would not raise prices on steel. Kennedy was desperately afraid of inflation. Steel workers were about to strike. He was desperately afraid of that, too. So to avoid the strike, workers got some fringe benefits from the companies, and the, but not wage increases. And in exchange for not having to pay wage increases, the companies promises not to raise prices. But then they broke their word, raising steel prices. And so on April 11th, in an April 11th, 1962 press conference, Kennedy called the price hikes, quote, a wholly unjustifiable and irresponsible defiance of the public interest. 
He criticized, quote, a tiny handful of steel executives whose pursuit of power and profit exceeds their sense of public responsibility. The executives had, quote, utter contempt, unquote, for the United States. Then in private, Kennedy added the line that rocketed around the boardrooms and fancy clubhouses of the CEOs. Kennedy said, quote, my father always told me that all businessmen were sons of bitches, but I never believed it until now. Well, the line, you can see why business was suddenly cool to the new president. Suddenly, the issue of confidence in the administration was a constant source of conversation. The value of all the stocks in this period, right before the Yale speech, was down 25%. And the joke told in Wall Street was that Joe Kennedy, who had been mute since having a stroke, said his first word in ages. And he said, to think, I voted for the son of a bitch. Kennedy was labeled anti-business. He was called a socialist. So the ideological debate between the president and business, there was the confidence question. Did business have confidence in a president they thought was against him? But then there was an ideological debate about policy, and this centered around the, the deficit and spending. Business wanted the deficit shrunk. Kennedy's chairman of his Council of Economic Advisors, Walter Heller, wanted a pump-priming tax cut. In other words, he was a bit of a supply-sider. Cut taxes. People will have more money in their pockets. They'll spend it at the counter, slapping down the dollar bill, and that'll lead to more growth and more jobs, and that will lead to greater tax revenues. Business needed investment, and it was competing with dollars that went to pay taxes. So cut the taxes. I'm paying my dollar now to the corner store and not to Uncle Sam. So this is an argument for deficit spending. And business had to be convinced the deficits meant new private investment and new jobs. An interesting debate popped up in the Kennedy administration at this point in this April-June period of nervousness. Should the president talk about the matter? This matters because the stock market is a volatile and difficult thing. A president doesn't just want to tie his fortunes to the market success because the market operates on funny humors. This is why Donald Trump is playing with fire when he boasts about the stock market increase on his watch. Say the market corrects for reasons having nothing to do with the president's policies. A president who is heralded the market as a response to his tenure and his good policies, then can't duck the negative reviews when the numbers start heading for the basement. John Kennedy did not talk. Instead, his administration put out the word that the market was reacting to the fact that Kennedy's policies at the beginning of his administration had whipped inflation. This was clever spin because the concern the market was demonstrating or the people interpreted the market's as demonstrating, was the other way, that Kennedy's actions taken in his first 60, 161 days of office to goose the economy had been a failure. He had taken seven measures from extending unemployment to helping farmers, to helping with housing, to uh, increasing Social Security payments, all in an effort to goose the economy. They'd all been passed into law in those, those first 161 days. And the market reaction was a, was a, a verdict on whether they were working or not, or so the public conversation suggested. Okay, so the administration, secondarily, in addition to deciding not to talk about the market's gyrations up and down, also quieted down talk of a tax cut and basically wrapped it inside comprehensive tax reform. Now, if that sounds familiar, because that's because what, that's what Ronald Reagan did in the mid-80s, and it's what President Trump says he wants to do. Why wrap tax cuts and tax reform? It's an easier way to sell it to business. They don't want just tax cuts for all that deficit spending. And why, why did they not like deficit spending? They thought it raised interest rates. That's why business didn't like it. So that's the context of the speech at Yale. So Kennedy has to make the case for his tax reductions. 
that his government expenditures, which led to the expansion of government in the areas, again, of infrastructure, housing, and minimum wage was increased, that those were not bad, that big government was not bad, and that it was wrong to claim that public lack of confidence in the administration was causing whatever stock market gyrations were taking place. So there are three things going on here, three arguments he's trying to make. And this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to advance three arguments that the business community does not believe. So that's a Herculean act of presidential persuasion. That Kennedy would even try to completely change the minds of the business community in a speech relied on a vision of the presidency that we don't really see much anymore. It relied on the idea that the president could persuade. And the chief architect of that was a man, was a political scientist named Richard Neustadt, the author of a set of influential memos written uh, for President Kennedy as he entered the administration. Despite his status, Neustadt explained in the book that rose out of these memos. A president does not get action without argument. Presidential power is the power to persuade. Not getting action without argument means you can't just order people to do things. You're going to get pushback from the courts, from Congress, from the bureaucracy. So you must persuade. It's a place where rhetorical power and argument then were a possible route to persuasion, since brute power only got you so far in a system designed to make a president weak. Kennedy believed that he could persuade because he felt he was, he was a master of the modern communications medium. He looked good on television, and he used his television press conferences to build up his power. The press conferences were in the classic Newstat formulation. They were acts of creating power, acts of creating influence. So you take an action today to build influence and power, and then you can spend and use that influence and power tomorrow the way that would work. With the press conference is, everybody loves your press conferences, they tune in, they think you're great. That means you can say something in a press conference and influence, for good or ill, somebody who you're dealing with. They, they know you always have that in your back pocket. And what's the similar analogy with Donald Trump? Well, if you talk to business leaders who are critical of, of Donald Trump, whether it's in the drug industry or the tourism industry or even manufacturing... A lot of these CEOs don't want to speak out because they're worried, particularly in a company that relies on consumer purchases, they're worried he'll tweet and put the finger on them the way he did with Boeing and with Carrier, and they don't want that kind of bad publicity. According to Robert Dalek in An Unfinished Life, quote, Kennedy believed that weekly press conferences, which were broadcast live on television and radio for the first time in American history, were making a difference. And here I'm going to repeat Ben Bradley's anecdote from Conversations with Kennedy. This anecdote is from a little later in 1962, but I think it still holds because, uh, well, because I do. Here's Bradley. The president went on television live tonight answering questions from each network's White House correspondent, Sander Van Oker of NBC, Bill Lawrence of ABC, both friends of Kennedy, and George Herman of CBS, George Herman, a former host of Face the Nation. I watched it at home, said Bradley, and felt professionally threatened as a man who was trying to make a living by the written word. The program was exceptionally good, well-paced, colorful, humorous, serious, and I felt that a written account would have paled by comparison. After it was over, I called Kennedy to tell him all this. Well, he told me I always said that when we don't have to go through you bastards, we can really get our story over to the American people. Robert Dalek reports that these press conferences were having an amazing effect on the polling. By April 1962, a Gallup poll showed that nearly three of four American adults in the country had seen one of the press conferences. 91% of them had a favorable impression of the president's performance. Only 4% had a negative impression. By 61 to 32%, 
margin, Americans favored the spontaneous TV format. Now, this, of course, is the exact opposite of Donald Trump. Kennedy went around the press to speak to the people, and his poll numbers increased. For Donald Trump, his supporters say, even his supporters say, he should stop the tweeting. The North Koreans also hold this view. So Kennedy goes to Yale, and he's got the oomph of the press conferences behind him. He's got the new stat memos convincing him that reason and truth can persuade. And so he begins his portion of the speech, transitioning out of history, to frame the historical moment. And he's now going to make a case about reason. For the great enemy of the truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. Too often we hold fast to the cliches of our forebears. We subject all facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. Oh, now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? This idea of we enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. And also, Kennedy is talking there about holding fast to the cliches of our forebearers. The prefabricated set of interpretations that he's basically talking about confirmation bias there. And we love uh, to be confirmed in what we already believe. So the president hasn't started making his specific case yet. What he's trying to do is crack open the minds of the audience, the business audience, with its well-worn beliefs so that they might be receptive to his deficit spending argument, his tax cuts, and, and stop blaming him for bad business confidence. Okay, back to Kennedy. Mythology distracts us everywhere, in government as in business, in politics as in economics, in foreign affairs as in domestic affairs. But today I want to particularly consider the myth and reality in our national economy. In recent months, many have come to feel, as I do, that the dialogue between the parties, between business and government, between the government and the public, is clogged by illusion and platitude and fails to reflect the true realities of contemporary American society. I speak of these matters here at Yale because of the self-evident truth that a great university is always enlisted against the spread of illusion and on the side of reality. No one has said it more clearly than your President Griswold. Liberal learning is both a safeguard against false ideas of freedom and a source of true ones. Your role as university men, whatever you're calling, will be to increase each new generation's grasp of its duties. Where did this idea of myths come from? Well, André Malraux, the French novelist, art theorist, and minister of cultural affairs, of course. You see, the parallels to President Trump are striking. Kennedy had taken Malraux to his country estate for lunch. The two had talked about the history of economic struggles, the monarchy versus the republic, the capitalism versus the proletariat. So what was the new issue today, they were wondering. The management of complex industrial societies, said the president. It wasn't ideological, it was technical. It called for a new way of thinking. This is where this idea came from. So in the speech, then Kennedy aligns himself with the idea of dispassionate reason 
And he, of course, is cloaking himself. He's literally cloaked in a hooded <laughs> garment because he's getting the degree. He cloaks himself in the reason of a university, not the political tit-for-tat cut-and-thrust of the presidency. He's not making a partisan response once he's been attacked, though, of course, that's exactly what he's doing. He's making a partisan response, but he's, he's sneaking it in. What he's saying is he's eschewing the partisan response a president could muster for a rational one. So here's how he puts that. I emphasize that I am concerned here not with political debate, but with finding ways to separate false problems from real ones. If a contest and angry argument were forced upon it, no administration could shrink from response. And history does not suggest that American presidents are totally without resources in an engagement forced upon them because of hostility in one sector of society. But in the wider national interest we need, not partisan wrangling, but common concentration on common problems. I come here to this distinguished university to ask you to join in this great task. So did you get that? He's putting down his weapons. This is an attempt at rational discourse. Quote, it was an academic exercise before an academic audience, said speechwriter Ted Sorensen, who helped Kennedy with his speech. So did Arthur Schlesinger. So did McGeorge Bundy. It was a lot of people working on this speech at the White House. Defining the context for the argument Kennedy is about to make. That's what presidents can do. They can marshal facts, of course, but part of the power of a successful politician is to define the ground on which the fight is going to take place. We've talked about this in the campaign context. But if you're a persuading president, you want to make your case in this context. We're talking about the historical context. I'm not sure what communicating uh, as a president is like today, frankly. But in this histor historical context, what you would do is you'd have your argument that proceeded from A to B to C to D. But before you gave it, you needed to take everybody over to the soft ground on which you would make your case. Because if you were to make the same case on the barren ground of the volcanic rock, uh, it wouldn't be as successful. So Kennedy is basically saying, let's go over here and have this argument on this place. So now to the meat of the speech, which was those three items, deficit spending, size of government, and business confidence. The presidency said government was not growing bigger when measured against the growth in every other major industry. So he was measuring the size of government in relative terms to other prospering parts of the American economy. So don't just measure it by itself, compare it to the rest of the economy. He also measured the deficit relative to growth, share of GDP, which you'll hear a lot in current budget debates. So it had gotten smaller since the war, he argued, and was shrinking as a share of GDP. As for confidence, here's what he said. The president said, quote, corporate plans are not based on a political confidence in party leaders, but on an economic confidence in the nation's ability to invest and produce and consume. Business had full confidence in the administrations in power in 1929, 54, 58, and 60. But this was not enough to prevent recession when business lacked full confidence in the economy. So those were his three arguments. He goes on at much more length about them. But we've spared you uh, uh, that here, though, of course, you can go find this on YouTube if you really want to hear the whole argument about those three particular elements of his argument. Here's how Reeves writes about how the speech was received. 
Any illusion the president entertained about winning over business with words were go- was gone the next morning when he was shown a cartoon in the Philadelphia Bulletin. A portly character labeled American Business was shown walking into his office with a black eye saying, so help me, I was hit by a myth. Kennedy speechwriter Ted Sorensen, in his oral history of the Kennedy years, said the adverse reaction among businessmen and conservatives generally showed that debt and deficit spending were as unpopular as ever. Schlesinger wrote, the business community as a whole regarded the speech as blasphemy. Time magazine wrote, President Kennedy and his advisors placed boundless faith in his powers of persuasion on TV screens. We don't need the press anymore, said a new frontiersman last week. We've got TV and public platforms. So it must have come as a disappointment to the administration that the Yale speech notably failed to reassure the business community. So, huge disconnect between the president who believes in reason and argumentation in a speech and the way in which it was received. And the reason there's a great disconnect is that the success of the campaign trail, the success of the press conference is different than the success in reasoning towards a legislative program. President Kennedy was a year away, a little more than a year away from his election victory, but he, because of the press conferences, still had the same kind of overconfidence that candidates get when they are elected president immediately from the campaign, because the victory can give a president-elect a case of the bends. He's likely to think that since he has convinced the public to elect him, he will have the power as president to convince the public to follow him. Uh, George Edwards III, a presidential historian, wrote this, it's a malady and it's a dangerous one. They've been talking for two years, he's talking about the campaign there, and that's all they've been doing. And then they win and they say, I can convince people of anything. The feedback is pretty strong. And so that feedback that was that you get from a campaign that Donald Trump feels from his campaign is a similar kind of feedback that Kennedy was feeling from those press conferences. They caused him to think that he could simply speak and people would follow. If he used his magic talent coupled with reason, he could win the day. And so he sounded in his speech like a man who would stem the tide of history. Here's what he said. He said, if there's any current trend towards meeting present problems with old cliches, this is the moment to stop it before it lands us all in a bog of sterile acrimony. The bog of sterile acrimony. That's just over the hill of bickering, just by the glade of irreconcilable differences. So we're going to end on a somewhat incomplete note. I focused on this speech so much because it was one of the many gambits by President Kennedy to shape the public through words. This is considered basically an impossibility today when you think about presidents who've tried this. Because partisanship means people need to simply be given the red meat that they need, and then they're with you. So Donald Trump tweets or treats his speeches not as an act of persuasion, but as an assertion on behalf of the silent majority. He doesn't reason to conclusions, he just states them. No one much explains anymore in their speeches, and no one puts together an argument the way that Kennedy did. President Obama tried, but on health care, for example, it didn't work. In the sense that the oratorical flair of the successful candidate Obama could not change the minds for the bill. And you remember there was that period around the Affordable Care Act when he was trying through oratory to change people's minds. Later, he just pretty much gave up or directed his speeches to his constituency. There was a period where people were saying, if if President Obama would just give more speeches, if he would only talk and use that great rhetoric from the campaign, which fundamentally misunderstood the difference between a campaign where you're making people choose between a binary choice and governing, where the series of choices and change that you're offering uh, is more frightening and harder. Of course, Donald Trump's oratorical gambits didn't work either in his sales pitch for the uh, the American Health Care Act. 
In a great book by Stephen Goldswig and George Dionysopoulos, they write about President Kennedy's speeches. Here's the way they characterize Kennedy's view of the way his own speeches would work. His evocative words would engage and energize the nation, imbuing its citizens with the feeling that anything was possible if they applied themselves in a collective, selfless effort on behalf of change. Well, of course, that's what you think of when you think of President Kennedy's inaugural address and the inspiration he gave to all those people who joined the Peace Corps. So the Kennedy talent for speechmaking was powerful. But in looking at this speech, I've spent so much time on it because it represents in part a relic of, of speechmaking and a relic of a brand of political persuasion. And the distinction is that you can give a pretty speech to frame an issue or to rouse your supporters or for any other number of reasons today, while accepting in today's context that a speech that does that won't necessarily do you any good politically. But Kennedy believed that you could do both, that you could give a pretty speech, and the prettier it was, the better it was, the more interlocking the argument, the better the case you made as a rational marching from point to point to point, the better chance you had of molding public opinion. He believed, as Goldswig and Dionysopoulos write, that, quote, the fundamental problem of a democracy was how to overcome its inherent inertia and arouse it to action. As he did in his famous inaugural address, Kennedy thought you could move people by calling them to a national mission. And that's what he was trying to do with this speech at Yale. Through reason, he was calling people to a set of economic policies for a new age. The speech was a failure as a piece of rhetoric, at least as it was judged by the business community immediately afterwards, although Kennedy did get his tax cut. But the speech itself is a perfect example of a theory of presidential persuasion that we will come back to again and again on future whistle stops. So I started this whole conversation off by saying that President Trump and President Kennedy reminded me of one another. Well, of course, President Trump doesn't try to reason to a conclusion in his remarks, but his effort to use his new medium to get around the traditional existing medium is very similar to President Kennedy. For me, this speech that we've spent so much time on here at Yale, which is not one that people might rush to if they were to pull the one Kennedy speech that moved them. But for me, in the analysis of speechmaking and persuasion, you can almost take Donald Trump and put him at one end and take President Kennedy and put this speech at the other end in terms of the way in which two different presidents try to make the case their cases to the public, one with a carefully argued long series and then another who makes basically short burst appeals to his base. And it is inside of that spectrum that we'll spend some of our future whistle stops as we look at the evolution of presidential communication, whether presidents can communicate in any way other than simply partisan terms, and therefore whether all the old rules about good speeches, because our partisanship is so locked in and there are no actual persuadable people in the political class anyway, that presidential rhetoric is has really atrophied. Or, if politics is being thrown upside down, and we are in a moment of flux where you have Democrats becoming Republicans who voted for Donald Trump, and Republicans abandoning the party for its support of Donald Trump, and there are maybe then more voters up for grab in a destabilized moment, then you could foggily fumble and paw your way through to a place in which presidential argument making 
and a linear approach to an issue might come back and look at least a little bit like this speech we've spent so much time on today. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcast at slate.com. Or even better, uh, leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who is not a Yale man himself, but is honorary in every degree, as far as I'm concerned. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Thank you.